Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. The regulators need to be very careful that they don't end up sounding as if they do not want to be publicly accountable. And I'm slightly bemused by their attitude at the moment. Today's guest calls out UK finance regulators for their vocal opposition to propose new government powers, though it would see lawmakers able to call watchdogs in to explain aspects of their approach to policing the city, arguing that such a stance is both self-delusion and constitutionally wrong. He calls on the UK's Financial Conduct Authority to stop seeing city executives as a bunch of criminals and do more to engage with financial services professionals. He explains why he believes that reinstating city intelligence gatherers known as Grey Panthers and establishing a proper secondment process at the FCA would ultimately help the watchdog better understand and police the sector. He also outlines how Parliament should best analyse the impact of changes to UK rules post-Brexit, and plenty more in between. Philip Warland's views have been crystallised over a 55-year career in financial services, which includes stints at the UK Central Bank, the Bank of England, and banking group Standard Chartered. His last full-time role was at fund manager Fidelity International, where he spent seven years leading its government affairs division as its head of public policy until 2017. He now advises several companies on regulatory matters, but he is speaking to following the rules in a personal capacity. Hi, Philip. Welcome to Following the Rules. Good morning. Very pleased to be with you. Well, I'd love to start by finding out a bit more about your career. Could you give us a quick summary? I started in the Bank of England. I was there for over 20 years did a number of jobs. I was in the governor's office in 76, and I ended up as the chief press officer, talking to people like you. I then spent a couple of years at Standard Chartered, and then I was recruited to run the Asset Management Trade Association, what is now the Investment Association. I then went to PwC as an advisor for a few years, did some headhunting with Nigel Halsey, and then my last proper job was with Fidelity as head of their public policy function. Public policy is interesting. You have to be prepared to get down in the weeds of the detail of legislation. And then you need to be able to both convey what's going on internally within the company you're working with, but also taking views externally to politicians and civil servants so they understand what the impact is of the proposals they're making. So it's a, it's a two-way job and can be quite fascinating. I can imagine. And since Fidelity, you've held a suite of roles, haven't you, uh, across a number of different organisations, one of which is at Creeb 
Could you tell us a little bit more about your role at Creeb? Yes, Creeb is a Scandinavian strategy group based in Stockholm. They have a big office in Brussels, and I've been a client of theirs both when I was at the Trade Association and at Fidelity. They're probably in the top three in Brussels on financial services. And what I do is help them understand what's going on in the asset management and in the UK. And could you tell us a little bit more about your role at the UK Fund Boards? What's topping your to-do list in that position currently? Yes, the Fund Boards Council was formed, what, two and a half years ago, and it followed the FCA changing the rules for independent directors on fund boards and introducing the concept of the assessment of value. And this is really interesting because the FCA has defined an independent director, which does not exist within UK company law, and it's given to independent directors specific responsibility for ensuring that the assessment of value is carried out and is carried out properly. And what the Fund Boards Council has done is working with companies and people in the industry to suggest what good governance looks like, in particular on a fund board. Okay, all this work is taking place on the UK side at the time when lawmakers are reviewing regulation that the city is subject to, to ensure that the financial services sector in the UK remains competitive post-Brexit. And they're doing that via a package of reforms known as the Financial Services and Markets Bill. What's your view on that bill, firstly? And are there any opportunities or challenges that you think lawmakers are missing in their approach? to reforming city regulation? On the whole, I think that the way the politicians and the Treasury have looked at it uh, has been sensible. A lot of the law we inherited from the European Union was quite well-founded, so you don't want to tear it up. Some of it can be cleaned up and streamlined, and that's what they intend to do. It does offer opportunities in one or two areas to improve regulation and supervision in the UK. The one difficulty that they haven't yet dealt with is the question of the accountability of the regulators. The regulators have been saying we're going to lose our independence, but they were never independent. The Bank of England is independent as far as monetary policy is concerned, but the regulators have always been accountable until Brexit. They are accountable to the European Parliament, the Commission, and some form of democratic accountability, I think, has to be built in. And if they continue saying they're losing their independence, they might be seen to be saying that they do not want any public parliamentary accountability. There needs to be a mechanism. The Treasury is talking about a call-in mechanism. If structured correctly and used sparingly, that could be one way. Personally, I would like to see a specialist joint committee of the two houses examining proposals put forward by the regulators. The Treasury Committee does a pretty good job, but some formal examination of regulatory proposals is needed. And I know the Treasury are thinking about it. So the Treasury Select Committee said in June it's planned to create a new subcommittee on financial services regulation, which will take the lead on scrutiny of financial regulation proposals. What's your view of that plan? Yes, it's very interesting. You have to just step back and think what's going on. The European legislation that we have on the statute books at the moment were subject to endless scrutiny, particularly in the European Parliament. What's going to happen is that essentially the Treasury and Parliament are going to delegate 
delegate to the regulators what is akin in UK terms to primary legislation. Therefore, they should be subject to considerable scrutiny. I think that the proposal for a specialist subcommittee of the TSC is good. As I said, I would personally have a joint committee with the Lords. Otherwise, the Lords will set up their subcommittee and you'll go through the same stuff twice. I also think that in the Lords, there are some very good financial services expertise. So I, I bring the two together. Okay. You've mentioned the so-called call-in powers that have been included in the Financial Services and Markets Bill. And these would enable the government to effectively call regulators in for further examination if they're not sure of a particular approach they're taking. They have proved very controversial. They've been subject to backlash from senior executives in the city, but also senior regulators. And recently, the Prudential Regulation Authority Chief Sam Woods has said that the introduction of such powers would create a system in which regulation blew with the political wind, i.e. that regulators would not have the independence that they imply that they enjoy now. And in reaction to that, the City Minister, Andrew Griffith, has written to the Treasury Select Committee to say that the government will not table those powers in the current stage of the bill. So they are buying themselves a bit more time there. What would you like Andrew Griffith and the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, to consider as they look into the detail of those powers now? Sam Wood said that he was going to lose his independence. As I say, I don't think he ever had any in the way he describes it. And I think there should be some formal accountability, both to the Treasury and to Parliament, for the major rules which the authorities put together. I can't think of a case where Treasury direction would be necessary, and that's good because such direction should be fairly sparingly used. But I do think that the possibility should be there because it is only government in one form or another, or parliament, which can fully reflect the public interest. And as I say, I, the regulators need to be very careful that they don't end up sounding as if they do not want to be publicly accountable. And I'm slightly bemused by their attitude at the moment. There's either some misunderstanding or self-delusion going on. I don't know a, a regulation in the world which is independent. And you have to have a degree of accountability and to suggest that the government of the day could never intervene in something that the regulators are doing, I think is uh, probably constitutionally wrong, actually. And the majority of the scrutiny should be through the select committee process, but the government must have the ability explicitly and transparently to intervene in what the regulators are doing. Okay. But it does seem like their opposition is working. It certainly seems to have encouraged the City Minister, Andrew Griffith, to take a step back and rethink the government's approach to implementing those powers. Well, we'll have to see how it goes. As I say, as an emergency and extreme tool, it seems to me to be entirely reasonable. And this has all come to a head because Brexit has required the UK to rethink it, the regulation that UK financial services firms are subject to, and also to shift the onus for rule setting and oversight of the compliance with certain rules from EU regulators to their UK counterparts. So Brexit ensures that there is a greater span of work for UK regulators to undertake now. So arguably it's more crucial than ever that that workload is monitored correctly. This is why the call and powers are first envisaged by Griffith's predecessor, the then City Minister John Glenn. I think you've expressed it precisely correctly there. And Glenn has said on this podcast that he would like to see those powers used sparingly. And Griffith did actually reiterate that in his letter to the Treasury Select Committee. Is there scope perhaps for that to be codified within the rules themselves, the fact that these should not be used at the slightest <laughs> excuse? I doubt it. You probably need to talk to a lawyer about that. 
I think that th this is one of these things where it's only custom and practice which will make it work or not work. And one of the other things that Sam Woods and Nikhil said was that they feared that it would damage the reputation of their regulators globally. And I don't think that's an absolute truth. But if the Treasury, for example, used call-in powers too often and without careful thought, then it could damage the appearance of our regulators globally. And they're not the only ones who are well-respected, but they are well-respected. But the regulators have never operated in a vacuum. They've always been subject to political interference in one way or another. At one stage, the Treasury didn't like the chief executive of the FSA, and he disappeared. That was a political intervention. I'm sorry, but they're, they're embedded in the real world. I think they have to understand that. Okay. And we've discussed that Brexit will massively increase the workload for UK regulators. Are you confident in UK financial services regulators' ability to cope with that increased workload? And if not, what should be done to ensure they can better cope? Well, what I've been pleased to see in the last few months is that the FCA has been bringing new blood in, which I think was needed. There were too many people who'd been there, in my view, too long, had fixed views on particular issues and were not very agile. And I've talked to one or two of the new people and they're more open-minded about how things can or should be done, which I think is good. The FCA has a number of problems in terms of staffing. One is the division between policy making and supervision. Everybody wants to go into the policy side, whereas I think they should focus much more on supervision, particularly of the perimeters. That's where the mistakes tend to happen. They should be more proportionate, in particular with the fund management industry. John Glenn in your podcast said that, uh, I can't remember his precise words, but it was something like that they should tone down the sort of language that suggests the whole of the financial services industry is malevolent. And I think that's right. There, there are, of course, poor examples which damage people. There's no doubt about that. But if you look at the fund management industry, there's only been two big problems. The first was Peter Young many years ago with Morgan Grenfell. What Peter Young did was he created shell companies which didn't exist and then got a friend of his to value them for him. And don't underestimate the emotional hit that would have taken on investors until it was sorted out. And of course, the second one, the more recent one, is the Woodford problem, which I'm not going to comment on because I think there's too many lawyers running around it. If you invested in his funds, you found, A, they were frozen, and B, they were probably worth less than you thought they were. That has largely come about because his funds had a number of illiquid investments in them, and that is still being sorted out. There is no suggestion that I know of, unlike Peter Young, that there's any fraud there. There is poor fund management. But the point I'm trying to make is that since the Second World War, there have been two serious problems in the fund management industry. And yet the FCA tends to treat us as if we were a bunch of criminals. And I don't think that's terribly helpful. Okay, but this comes at a time when the FCA has broadened its scope considerably to monitor not just financial misconduct, but also non-financial misconduct. And non-financial misconduct can be defined as behaviour that the FCA does not see as in keeping with an individual working in the financial services sector, but it's taking place outside of work. And if you look at non-financial misconduct instances in the fund management sector, there are significantly more than two that have taken place where individuals have been charged or suspected of wrongdoing. 
Yeah, the question I would ask is, where was the investor damaged? Absolutely agree that non-financial misconduct is something which has to be looked at since we have tests of fitness and properness. So I have no problem with that. And if they want to clean up various parts of the business, that's fine. But there's a difference between that and actions which actually positively damage investors and clients along the way. And I'm not sure that any of this non-financial misconduct has actually caused damage so that the regulator's action may be considered prophylactic, if I can put it like that. To that extent, it's good. Okay, but your point still stands that you would like to see the regulator evolve away from seeing the financial services sector and the fund management sector as being inherently nefarious. Yeah, I mean, they're required to control our behaviour, there's no doubt about that. But if you look at the second paragraph of their most recent paper on SDR, there's a phrase there, I haven't got it in front of me, but it's something like, there have been concerns that fund managers may be making exaggerated, unsubstantiated, misleading claims. And, well, there may be concerns, but to suggest that the suggestion is that this is widespread and therefore needs heavy action. And it's double-edged because you would think that the regulator would want trust to be built up in financial services. Statements like that do the precise opposite. And if they followed through on that in an unreasonable and disproportionate way, then that's the sort of thing where I think the Treasury might step in and call it in and say that is not proportionate and it's not helpful and it's not in the public interest. Okay. And in relation to SDR, you're referring to the sustainability disclosure requirements, which are part of the FCA's efforts to ensure that financial services firms pay more attention to environmental, social and governance concerns in the way they do their business. You mentioned that you would like to see the FCA focus more on supervision, and particularly in relation to the perimeter of its regulatory remit. Could you explain why? Yeah, it's because it's where all the problems occur. And they seem not to have very good intelligence. Bank of England used to spend a lot of time talking to players in the market and when you have some of these scandals which have gone on by unauthorized firms i am certain that other people in the locality other ifas in particular and possibly banks would have known this was going on but it never got back to the regulator because the regulator isn't out there in the real world asking these questions and it's one of the ways where i think that they could improve what scandals are you referring to there there was this scandal called London Capital and Partners, which cost the Treasury a lot of money. They had to bail out the investors. People talked to each other, and I'm absolutely certain that other IFAs in the vicinity of that operation, or the banks, which must have known about it, would have been able to point to it and say, this is worth having a look at. They used to have guys called Grey Panthers, and these were bankers, asset managers, who'd been in the game for 20, 30 years, and as it were, knew where the bodies were hidden. And if you talk to the regulators when the Grey Panthers were there, they would say how helped was, both in guiding them as to how the world really worked, and therefore how the world was best regulated. And I think that the FCA has lost that ability and that background. And from day one, I think they got it wrong. None of the regulators, so far as I'm aware, have gone out and tried to get the best of the upcoming in terms of the lawyers and accountants. And it's possible to do it. And that's one thing I would do if, if I was Nikhil.
I'd be wandering around the city saying, I want your brightest and best for two years. Could you briefly explain why they were called Grey Panthers, uh, for listeners who might not be familiar with that, and what needs to happen to reinstate that process? They were called Grey Panthers because of the colour of their hair, and panthers because they'd been in the forest for quite a long time. They were personally contracted to the FCA, or the FSA as it was, and most of them left because a rule came in which says they couldn't have any other remunerated business in the financial services world. And that's a completely different point from the secondment point. The secondments, you would get early 30s people in the accountants and the lawyers, and you get them for 18 months to two years. And the deal is that when they go back to their work, they understand intimately the regulator's thinking and they can pass that on to their clients and make use of it in the way they handle their clients and it works extremely well i got the idea from the bank of england when the bank was given powers under the banking act it's suddenly discovered it really didn't understand accounts at all it had no accountants so it was brian quinn i think who did what i've just described and went to the senior partners of the accountancy firms and said I want your brightest and best and so the bank got in for 18 months or two years very good bright upcoming accountants that's where I got the idea from worked extremely well and I think it could work for the FCA the the city people the accountants the lawyers would see the point of it. Okay, so the Panthers were essentially advisors that advised the FCA on areas they thought the FCA was missing, or the FCA's predecessor, rather. But you're saying that's not sustainable in these days. But a alternative approach would be to get secondis in from industry to inform the FCA of industry practice, but also become better aware of the regulators' priorities and ways of working, be able to then go back to their firms and advise them on that. I'm saying both. I don't see any reason why you could not reinstate something like the Grey Panthers and get extensive experience of the market inside the FCA. They're two separate concepts. The Grey Panthers used to be good. They not only sat in on policy making, but they used to sit in, for example, on enforcement cases and offer an expert view on whether the behaviour that was being examined was reasonable or not. They had no executive powers, they had no powers of decision, but they could bring understanding of the world and of the markets inside the FCA. So what type of individual could you envisage becoming a Grey Panther right now? (laughs) Well, every year you get senior people leaving senior posts in the city, and it's people like that. If you choose them correctly, then you could ask them to spend some time in the FCA. And that role ceased to exist previously because of concerns around conflicts of interest. So how would you advise the FCA and the individuals in those roles best address the conflict of interest point? As always with conflicts of interest, you are open about it. And sometimes there will be cases where you have to recuse yourself. So, for example, when I joined Fidelity, one of the regulators supervising Fidelity was my wife. (laughs) So Fidelity and the FSA had an exchange of letters as to how that would be managed. And if anything to do with Fidelity ever came up, my wife would leave the room. So you manage it. Okay, that's quite a challenging dynamic, I can imagine. Have you discussed the reinstatement of the Grey Panther concept with the FCA at any point? 
Uh, no, not since Nicholl's been there. Okay. So what would need to happen for that to be reinstated? Would that be a conversation that needs to happen with lawmakers or the FCA directly or both? I don't think it needs any change in the law. The FCA, we need a board agreement about the FCA and they could put a programme in place. The difficulty is managing secondees and the company partnership. Where the secondees come from have to be good at managing their secondees. In most cases, they're extremely good and would talk to their secondees every month to make sure that they didn't feel that being out of the partnership, they would lose out on promotion or something like that. And that has to be worked on as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we're speaking not long after a change of government prompted predominantly because the previous government's efforts to create a business-friendly environment post-Brexit in the UK led to a market upheaval that not only increased the government's cost of borrowing, but also triggered a full-scale liquidation event for pension funds. What lessons should be taken from that event generally, and also specifically in relation to pension fund regulation? It's really interesting, the Pazi Kwarteng mini-budget. There is no economic rule which says that there is a limit to unfunded government spending, despite what the IMF sometimes thinks, particularly when you can borrow in your own currency. But there are limitations. There's two limitations on the whole which are connected. One is, will the market buy your debt? And the second limitation is the cost of of servicing it. My own feeling is that if Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss had done what the Prime Minister and the Chancellor are doing at the moment, which is rolling the pitch and giving hints about the amount of taxation, the amount of spending cuts they're going to make, if they'd taken their time, they could have gone quite a long way down the road they wanted to go so long as the market understood it and accepted it and if they'd done that they'd have been able to see both the market reaction and the political reaction and although the market reaction the political reaction may have prevented them from doing what they wanted to do it wouldn't have caused the disruption which they did cause. So in one sense, it's a pity that they were simply inexpert in what they did. On the pension funds, I think that's a really interesting question and we'll learn more about it over time. But it so happens that I've got a pension fund report in front of me from Standard Charter Pension Fund and they comment on the LDI strategy and say that because they'd monitored LDI, LDI was only 38% of, of their pension fund, and because they had not taken much leverage in their LDI mandates, they did not have to sell any assets in order to meet their collateral charges. And then I asked myself, so how come they got that so right? And the answer is because the chairman of the trustees of this pension fund is a professional. And I think that what the LDI problem has revealed is quite simply that pension fund trustees are not sufficiently expert to ask the questions when faced with an LDI proposal as to what degree has it been tested? Uh, Was it tested for a shift in guilt yields of one and a half percent in two days? What is the leverage involved? And not only what is the upside, but also what is the downside? And to be fair, had I been a trustee faced with an LDI proposal, I would not have known enough about it to ask the right questions. So I suppose my conclusion is that I think there needs to be a considerable professionalisation in pension fund trustees.
Okay, and LDI refers to liability-driven investments, and it's a strategy in which the funds would look at the liabilities they're exposed to and seek to hedge against those risks by investing in investments that will pay out over the period of those liabilities. And you mentioned that you think that, that incident shows the need for professionalisation of pension fund trustees. What regulatory changes need to happen in order to bring that about, or what structural or industry changes need to happen to bring that about? suspect that the pensions regulator could introduce a rule which said that at least one of the trustees had to be sufficiently expert to deal with these matters. Whether there's enough of them around, I don't know, but I suspect that you could find them. And then you've got the Law of the Bench of Pension Trust Corporation, which is a grouping of professional trustees, and they're not the only ones who can provide people who are sufficiently expert that they can get behind some of the proposals that are put in front of them. Okay. And your role at Creve enables you to hold private conversations with senior EU regulators and also requires you to track regulatory changes taking place in the EU. And the conversation has focused on the UK to date, but there is also a significant amount of regulatory change taking part in the EU as EU policymakers address the implications of Brexit for the Eurozone, but also seeks to review post-crisis regulation introduced as well. What would you say are the main takeaways from those conversations? And what common misconceptions do you perceive exist in UK markets about the UK's future relationship with the EU and the EU policymakers' views on that? There's been lots of noise about delegation, but having talked to quite a lot of the European regulators and to ESMA, I think it's been misconstrued. I think that what they are very keen on is better risk management right across the park. And if you talk to the European regulators... When they talk about delegation, they make the point that they want better risk management about delegation in-house as well as across borders. And I think it's a general push right across Europe for better risk management generally. Okay. And by delegation, you're referring to a common practice within the asset management sector, both in the UK and EU, for asset managers to have a base in the EU, but delegate key functions of the role to individuals based in the UK. So for example, portfolio management would take place in the UK, despite the fact that the business would have an EU base. And there was concern immediately following the Brexit vote that the EU would fundamentally rethink that to ensure that key decisions in relation to assets held by European investors were being made outside the EU. Noises around that have since calmed down substantially, and that's what you're referring to. You think there's been a misunderstanding on the UK side as to what the EU motivations there are? I think that's absolutely right. Clearly, that there was a fear that if, for example, delegation to third countries was banned, then it puts a hand grenade in the asset management, fund management model globally. And as I say, I think the regulators on the continent are concerned about risk management of delegation generally, including including internally within firms. And this is a debate that's been going on for some time to argue that if the fund is based in the EU, then a major part of the risk management of the fund should be done in the EU. But if you put that in place, then I think it makes it easier to delegate functions such as portfolio management outside the EU. The thing you also hear in the EU, and this is why what happens with the new bill here is so important, 
is that there is a fear that the UK will use financial services regulation as a competition issue. And of course, since the FCA and the PRA have been given competition as a secondary objective, that does wind them up a bit. I don't think it will come to much. And I don't think that the UK authorities are minded to have the bonfire of regulation, which some in the EU fear, as there are various bits of the EU regulation which are headed in the right direction in principle, but in detail could be streamlined and made to work better. The huge difference is that in the EU, they cannot regulate by principle. Their legal system simply doesn't allow them to do that. Whereas over here, we can act in that way. So the, the FCA has said, we want to improve the way that fund boards work. We want the investor to be better served. Here are some things you should think about, but we won't tell you what the outcomes are. <laughs> you simply could not do that in the EU. And it's the sort of thing where I think the industry and to some extent the regulators look across the channel and wish they could behave like that, whereas they actually have to write everything down in the finest legalese. So you detect a bit of envy on the part of the EU regulators as to the UK regulators' approach? I think so, yes. The getting stuff done in the EU is extremely long-winded. I mean, it's fairly long-winded here, but it's even more so over there. And because of that, you can see, in particular in the case of sustainability, because it's not clear what it is that you should be doing in particular parts of the value chain, if I can put it like that, various of the European regulators have written their own laws and rules which only apply within their own jurisdictions. So if you're a pan-European asset manager, <laughs> you not only have to deal with whatever it is that is written into EU law, you also have to deal with what the local regulator has said and it really becomes quite complex. Okay and any resolution to that issue that you perceive? Uh, yes because of the way the EU works they will revise and, and look at all of this stuff down the track but it will take in my view five years and they will review everything that's been done and they will try and correlate the different bits of the regulation which they have and make them better integrated. Okay and lastly what's one upcoming or current challenge no one's talking about that you think the industry needs to pay more attention to? is digitalization and both the industry and the regulators in particular need to understand what's going on. This is all to do with blockchain and what it allows you to do, and it's being done in the United States already, is you can fractionize any asset. So one of the problems we've had in fund management is that it's very difficult to get retail investors into property, which is a good diversified asset class. The insurers could do this and they do it with their policies because they actually own the asset. But in a fund, as we know from open-ended property funds, which quite simply, in my view, don't work, it's quite difficult to get a retail investor into property. With blockchain accounting, you can fractionalise a building and you can offer an investor as much or as little of that building as they want within their portfolio. There are issues over ownership and custody, but it's where the industry is looking and the regulators need to be looking at the moment. Are there industry players that are providing those solutions that you've just referenced now? That's a good question. And I think they're struggling on some of the legals on this. The economic concept is pretty simple, but I think there are asset managers who are thinking about this and working on it.
And what's your view on the FCA's ability to address that digitalization point and the complexities that it requires? It's a question where the regulators would need to get expertise inside working with them, but also consulting, as they have done through their sandboxes, as to what's going on, what are the benefits for clients, and therefore, how do we make it happen? Okay, well, that's been a really interesting conversation, Philip. So thank you very much for your time today. Not at all. (laughs) I hope some of it makes sense. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.